Hi everyone, it's Dina McKay and I'm back with a brand new episode of Black Tech Unplugged, the podcast that allows Blacks and Techs to share their authentic stories with you, the listener. On each episode, the guest talks about how they got into tech, their work in the industry, and lessons they've learned during their journey. You can find full show notes for this episode on blacktechunplugged.com. On this episode, I have Everett Harper. He's the CEO and co-founder of Trust. Trust builds software and infrastructure to help companies and public agencies scale and modernize digital services. They apply expertise in human-centered design, engineering, product, infrastructure, and security to their clients. On this episode, Everett and I talk about his journey through tech. We talk about his experience as a tech entrepreneur, and he even gives us some insight on how to get onto a board. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you do, please make sure to rate and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this episode today. Now let's get it. Hi, everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of Black Tech Unplugged. I have Everett Harper on this episode. Hey, Everett. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. So to begin our conversation, for my listeners who are not familiar with you and the work that you do, why don't we give an intro? Sure. So I'm the CEO and co-founder of a company called Trust. We founded it in 2012 with two other co-founders, uh, Mark Verlot and Jen Leach. Uh, and the three of us used to work for a company called Linden Lab, which made Second Life, for those of you who may remember one of the first virtual worlds and one of the more influential ones. What we do, we help clients. Some of them are government agencies like the DOD or U.S. Transcom in particular, and the Center for Medicaid Services, or private sector clients like Nuna, who did really good work in healthcare. And what we do is help them solve really complex problems that have to do with sort of transforming their software development or their infrastructure. We have a full suite of people from designers, engineers, infrastructure, delivery to help these visionary leaders that have an understanding of what it takes to change their systems, but don't necessarily have the resources or the knowledge to do so. But that in a nutshell is what trust is about. We are now 105 people. We grew in the last two years. See, in January of 2018, we were 20. So <laughs> we could talk a lot about scaling and and all the bumps and bruises that go along with that. But we're really excited about where we're going and where we're headed and particularly the kind of impact we have on on meaningful problems. And we'll talk in details about that. Yes. And why don't we go ahead and jump into the details? So tell my listeners some of the problems that your company solves, even maybe give some examples of the work that you've done. Sure. I think the first one that really put us on the map was I get a call from my co-founder in October of 2014 at 7 p.m. on a Sunday. Now, for any of you who have founded companies or thinking about it or working on project teams, if you get a call on a Sunday at 7 p.m., it's not a call you want. <laughs> it's usually some sort of bad news. Right. And so I pick up the call. It's my co-founder, Mark. And he says to me, Everett, the CTO of the United States wants me to come help them fix healthcare.gov. And I said, okay, you got to go. He says, yep, I got to go. I said, when are you going to leave? He says, Tuesday, it's Sunday. He said, okay, we'll figure it out. And that was the call. It was about 90 seconds. And what we wound up doing, he went first and was part of basically the team that rescued healthcare.gov after it crashed and burned on day one. And to give a sense of this, this scale, they, or the pressure, healthcare.gov legislation, if it did not work, could be revoked by Christmas Eve. And by not work, it meant that it had to accommodate, I believe, a million people. It was supposed to do seven, and it had been completely busted before then. And so got in there, and this was not our plan, but it was important for the country and it was important from a value perspective. And that's sort of an important thing that is, is trust is that we have very explicit values about the types of projects we work, want to work on. And we have explicit desire to, you know, improve the lives of people. So this really fit that, fit that criteria. That got done. Seven million people were able to get on in that first year. 
then they asked us back because they said, hey, you all know what you're doing. How about building the next one? And so we wound up being part of the team and we particularly drove the part of the project that was like a 1040EZ for healthcare.gov, which is if you didn't have a lot of particular conditions, you could have a very simple, straightforward form in order to register for healthcare. So that was a really big and meaningful project. I've had a lot of people on the podcast and for a story on impact, that has to be one, probably the craziest and most (laughs) unique story of impact is getting a phone call on Sunday night and then all of a sudden working on the healthcare website. So that is extraordinary. By the way, fixing the healthcare.gov site was one thing. The real innovation was that there's a cadre of people who realize that the issue is not just software. The issue is how software is purchased. Mm. And the procurement system is the real place for innovation. So since then, the United States Digital Service, 18F, a variety of companies like ours have all been in this space and working with agencies to streamline that procurement process and So typically there might be something, hey, we're going to give a 10-year contract for X billion dollars, or very specifically in the healthcare.gov space, they gave a company $200 million in three years, and the procurement itself was written in a way that almost guaranteed failure if you then got it. And so going for smaller, better defined, agile contracting and procurement has now become the way that many of the procurements are going in more of the bigger agencies. And that, I think, even if we're not doing the work, the impact of that work reverberates both in federal government, state government, and local government. That is a lot to unpack there. I want to start with, (laughs) from my position, I've worked in consulting for years. So to hear how your company function is just, it's so unique to me because we don't do that. Like Mm. I work for a consulting company. We focus on digital and enhancing companies, digital presence. And Mm -hmm. to hear just the approach that trust takes in regards to their consulting operating model, is just like fascinating to me. So partly it's the, the partly as it's evolved, we focus on systems and we focus on systems because If you think about infrastructure, infrastructure is really an interaction between technology, people, and operations. Those are separate systems, but they all have interactions, and those interactions can be very complex. However, if you look at it as a system, then then one has the opportunity to say, if you're just fixing this part of the website, but the impact of that fix creates problems for somebody else downstream, that's not really a good fix. Another example is everybody's been in a situation where all of a sudden they got a new software in their company, new HR software, new project software, and it made your life worse rather than better. Probably because no one actually asked you, what is it that you actually need? What are the things you want to accelerate? What are the things you want to stop? What are the things that cause you a lot of headaches because it takes too long? Had they asked, and then design the software with you, the operator of the system in place, that system would have a lot of fans as opposed to resistance. Right. Uh, That's one of the people's sides. Of course, you have to ask customers. So if you're, you're, you know, one of the things we insist on actually is that we talk to the end user and customer of whatever we're we're designing. You know, sort of classic human-centered design But we also ask that question from the standpoint of infrastructure. So there's one thing I'm using the system, say someone getting healthcare. There's another thing is somebody who's administering the system. Both of those are customers. And so when you think about design, it's really design of that interaction for a customer, but it's also the design of the people operating. That's the infrastructure that surrounds it. So you can see, so our, our sort of lens on this is that there's, interrelated systems. And if you want to create a sustainable, really impactful change, then designing with that in mind or coming to a solution that in mind is really important. 
I think the second thing is we work with clients who, you know, want to make do something different. They want to the cloud or they want to offer a new product or they et cetera, et cetera. It's important that we do that research, the design and framing of that question. And sometimes we come up with answers or with findings that contradict what they had intended to do. Those are really challenging meetings because you know you want to do right by the client and they have their well-reasoned ideas. And at the same time, and I'll give you a specific example, we had one of our clients say, hey, yeah, our, our infrastructure we built to ship this product, it's locked down, no problem. Let's focus elsewhere. And my co-founder said, well, are you sure? And yeah, 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 no problem. Say, okay, here's the thing. You might be totally right, but let's just run a test. We'll do a week, run a quick test. And if it performs as expected, you're completely right. Because if it doesn't work, the risk of it not working is really bad. You wouldn't want to find that out when you're delivering to your biggest customer, right? They exactly, right. Turned out it didn't work. And then the client said, wow we have a much bigger problem. <laughs> and so that's where we, we work with them to fix that problem. That has happened over and over again, that if we're, you know, kind of using a concept of radical candor, if we're, if we treat a problem as if we were owning that problem, and we lay out the case for how we'd mitigate that problem, while trying to achieve the objectives of, you know, the project itself, clients tend to appreciate it, even if they are reluctant at first. I think a key piece of that is making sure that people understand that you may have made decisions with either less than perfect information or it was a great decision a year or two ago. But situations change and revisiting those assumptions are really important. And ultimately, you have to prove it. And we try and prove it uh, with our clients and work side by side with them to, to have the, the best outcome. So two things that I want to circle back on. A lot of companies say that they're people focused, but you're actually honest to your word that you are people focused by how you describe your company and the work. And I think that's amazing. Thank you. Uh, we, we work hard on that. And I think it's, it's, I think, a philosophy that resonates both for the people working at Trust as well as the clients. When you get up to a certain level, uh, when you're talking to decision makers, my experience is, if thinking about this just as, as technical change or technological change is only half the battle, a bigger battle is the organizational change, the people side. Mm -hmm. And so we speak to both sides of that. How can you make the people within your company better with the solutions that you are delivering to your, your customers? How can you make the engineers faster? How can you take dumb, repetitive things out of the hands of designers so that they can do their best work. I mean, ultimately, that's what we all, want, we all want to do. We want to be able to do our best work without all the BS that often accompanies it. So we take that into account, yeah. And I want to piggyback off the concept of being human-centered and mm -hmm. focusing on people. At your company, you have diverse teams. And I'm yeah. not sure if you can share some of the diversity stats that you have. Yes, yeah, so let me take one step back before I take a step forward. So... The co-founders are me, an African-American business side CEO, a white male CTO, engineering background, and a white female COO who also came out of the engineering side. So right away, we started out with a diverse leadership team. Mm -hmm. And we set the values of our company really early on when we were less than 10 people. And one of those values, and we put it right there on our website, is you know diversity and inclusion. And the way that we think about diversity and inclusion is not well. All of our values, we called we called that project the anti IBM poster project, <laughs> <laughs> which is like you know you see the big corporate. I didn't call it IBM. All, all these other people do uh, do it as well, but. You see those posters on the wall that say things like um, inspiration or <laughs> innovation, usually with a with a, the picture of like a forest or a, or an ocean or something like that. Oh and it's yes, divorced, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. It's divorced oh, yeah. from the reality and the practice. So we thought about our practices. All of our values are verbs. 
which means that there's actions that one can take and continue to take to exemplify and and live out these values. And diversity and inclusion is one of them. So we said we are going to, at minimum, we will have a representation of diversity that is at the level of the tech industry. It's a very low bar, as we both know. <laughs> Our ultimate goal is to have a uh, representation that is the U.S. And then finally, it's will continue to evolve and reflect where there's talent and where there's where there's uh, good people because they're everywhere. So what I can say, for people who are African-American, Asian, Latinx, LGBTQ, if you bucketed all of those, that would be 35% of the company. Okay. Two, we've had over 40% women, I think it's 45% women in the professional ranks. So that would be the designers, engineers, infrastructure people, delivery people. So at the core of what we deliver, uh, nearly half have been women. We're pretty proud of both of those, particularly on the women's side. And we realized, and you know, two year, year and a half ago, we were slipping on some of our numbers, particularly for for African Americans, which you know, frankly, was a little embarrassing, right? So one of the things that we started to do was say, okay, we need to tie this to the mechanics of how we get people in. So we measured where, oh, by the way, we are part of Project Conclude. I want to do a shout out to them because they were instrumental in influencing the way we thought. Focus on measurement. Like you can't do anything unless you actually measure what you have. So we did right. a measurement and then we said, okay, we're falling behind. Where is the problem? Is it in, we get enough candidates, but they don't make it through our interview process? Is that the problem? Let's get the numbers and figure out what that funnel looks like. That wasn't the issue. So what does our recruiting look like? First, are we reaching enough potential candidates in the first place? And then are we doing a good job of drawing them? That seemed to be more of the issue. Which we tested probably 40 different channels, including websites, people, recruiters, networks, private listservs, a variety of things, people's personal networks, until we figured out which one of them really started to deliver the high quality candidates who fit with where we were going in terms of skill and who were attracted to the company that we were creating. And now we have a pretty good handle on that and we saw our numbers go way up. So it's very much kind of in the spirit of our company. What's the problem? How do we get data to figure out where the issues are? How can we run experiments to figure out what gives us some signal about what to do next? And once we figure out the signal, really declare that the center of our operations and double down on that until we get the results that we're looking for. So I'm going to put all of that on a billboard somewhere because I wish that more companies would take that approach. First of all, the fact that you even have the numbers and are willing to share those numbers is excellent because as we know, most companies mm-hmm. won't even share their diversity numbers, let alone mm-hmm. various breakdowns. So first off, that is excellent. And I think given the current climate, obviously we know there's mm-hmm. been a lot of racial tensions over the last few months. So if we want to get specific, the George Floyd, mm-hmm. what I will call murder, kicked off it, all no, that we can talk it about. It is murder. <laughs> right. Call it exactly what it was. With when that occurred, everyone, you know, threw out a diversity statement. We're gonna do this, that, and the other. Right. The same people who were already not giving their numbers on diversity wanted to do all of these things. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you have any additional advice because what you've said is already a giant step forward for anyone listening to the podcast. But for any company that is looking to increase diversity, what advice or tips do you have for them, especially as a leader of a company? Yeah. Okay. I have a couple. First is it has to come from the top. It has to come from the CEO or the board. And the reason is that if the company has an issue with diversity, if they are not diverse enough, if they're homogeneous, that's a culture, right? There's a culture that has developed around that, rightly or wrongly person who is most influential in shifting a culture is going to be the CEO. Because in any culture, there's resistance to change. Even if it's a good culture, it's resistance to change. It has right. to be driven through by the, by the leader. Second is, and I've talked to a couple of people about this, is this a side project? Or do you have a theory 
of how diversity and inclusion impacts your business in a positive way. And if you don't, I said, you, know, you should have a purpose. You should have a outcome that you're seeking. And it should be tied to the business. Why do I say that? Because we now have data with many of us already knew. Having diverse teams of people increases business results. Those companies that have the diverse team and has diversity, particularly in the leadership, have greater than expected positive financial outcomes. They outperform the market of their peers who do not have the same. That is already out in the world. The research has been done. So there's not an argument about that. The argument needs to be, well, how does it affect your business? And if it's not clear that hits the purpose of the business or that you can see how it will materially affect your business. And I don't mean like, oh, we have black coffee, we have Latino. It means things like, sort of my favorite example is autonomous vehicles. So I've had the experience a bunch of going into a airport washroom not lately, but back when we flew, <laughs> uh, and I put my hand under the, the soap dispenser, yep. and nothing comes out. I put my yep. hand in again, nothing comes out. White person goes in there, comes out every time. And, <laughs> you know, you thought that, that, am I just crazy, or is this just happening? And there's data that particular companies use different technology that did not see my hand. Like, it does, and my skin is, is invisible to them. Okay. That's just an annoyance. But imagine that same group, that same team was designing an autonomous vehicle, an autonomous truck. If they don't have a diverse team that would maybe say, hey, did we test this on the wide range of color? Or did we use a technology that's sufficient? Or do we have a solution for that? That not seeing me becomes deadly, not an annoyance. Because a truck hurtling at me that doesn't see me means I'm dead. Right. That's the stakes. That's the stakes. And so that is a business result and a business outcome that should be important to anybody designing AI. And in, that's just one example among them. So that's the second thing is, is it's got to be tied to the, to the business. The third thing, it's sort of related. If it's not that, then it becomes a side project becomes a marketing project, becomes an, just just an HR project, not one that has the imprimatur of the leader. And those projects fail. I think we probably all know, but for the in the audience, but for others, don't give it to the, you know, some representative of an underrepresented group without uh, paying them for that additional responsibility or taking the other responsibilities they have away from them so they can actually do that work. There really needs to be, and actually I'm pleased to see a bunch of people doing this, there's a learning process for white people that needs to be started. I've had white friends of me who are leaders and real smart folks say, I thought I was a really educated person, but I had no idea about Tulsa. Holy crap. I had to watch The Watchmen in order to learn about an important part of our history. People are waking up to that reality all the time. And so there's a process by which leaders need to step back and say, what do I need to learn historically and how I have furthered, emboldened, stopped that system from operating in a negative way for Black people, in this case, specifically Black folks, but you could talk about any other group. So that's, a, that's the other thing. It's like, you know, uh, I saw a friend of mine post today, how are you going to win when you ain't right within uh, quote, hmm. right? And right. I loved it because that that's it, right? That is it. You got to start there and then use one's leverage as a leader to change the culture and follow that change in culture with the measurement and the processes and think about it as a problem to solve. Measure your progress and hold people accountable. I think that's an excellent answer. I hope that there are some leaders who are listening to the podcast and take your tips and advice. I feel like at this point, anyone saying that they cannot increase their diversity, because I'm sure you've heard that said before, and I know I have, at this point, it's because you're not making it an intentional part of your company. And like you said, That's it right. starts from the top down. Yeah, it's a choice. If you're going to choose that, own it. And, and I'm sure listeners know this. People are paying attention. There is definitely a network of, hey, how is this company when it comes to treating women or senior black leaders or 
whatever, and people will tell you, <laughs> you know, and it's really, it's, it's short-sighted for leaders not to assume that their reputation, negative or positive, gets around. Exactly. Companies are out it now because of social media and people coming together and talking about what goes on behind those doors. So mm -hmm. things are out in the open a lot more than they used to be. That's right. Can I say three other things? Um, I'll make them quick uh, with regard to this in terms of tips and advice with regard to diversity. Sure, of course. Okay. So two things that we've done at Trust really early on that have proven to be really good business decisions on this that I would like to offer for folks. First is we are a remote first company. So we've been that way since 2012. Um, I think Automatic and GitLab might be some of the others that were before us, but there weren't as many uh, large companies who were making that decision early on. Um, and certainly a lot of us, a lot of people advised us, you can't create a culture remotely. It's like, well, actually working at Linden Lab in a virtual environment actually showed us that you can. So we made that choice, but here's how it interacts with diversity. We knew that talented people are all over the country. They're probably underrepresented in Silicon Valley. So instead of saying, oh, I don't have enough people in Silicon Valley, we'll go to where the people are. So we have, we have people in 30 states people in Mississippi, people in North Carolina, folks in DC and Chicago, et cetera. Well, guess what? You're going to find a different population, a more diverse population than you would in San Francisco. And that's been a huge benefit to our ability to attract really great, talented people who increase our diversity in a bunch of dimensions. The second is, and this was explicit, we have all of our salaries transparent within our company. Everybody knows what everybody makes if you want to look it up internally. Why did we do that? The reason why we did that is that is a very effective way to make sure that there isn't pay disparities. If you look on a quarterly basis and you notice somebody doing the same job has a slightly different pay than another person, you can fix it. And we've seen from various people uh, who have exposed companies who were doing really bad things with pay disparities either on a gender or a race basis. And we wanted to go avoid that straight away and be accountable to that. So that's what we've done. And we did it explicitly as a diversity and inclusion initiative. The other reason, just as uh, for listeners, we have those bands set up in the beginning. And what it also does is prevent sort of the negotiation and so forth and so on that some people do better than others, and there's some gender-related impact of that. Well, if you have a $10,000 difference because you negotiated something different for the same job, if each person gets a 5% bump every year, that gap goes up. It's right. just systematic. Right. So having pay transparency shifts that problem that even well-intentioned companies can find themselves in. Make sure that that aspect of diversity and inclusion is taken care of. We we pay people based on what their merit is, what their skill level is, straight up. The last thing I would say in terms of DNI, and this is, I think, uh, something that I'd like to see many more people talking about, is board seats. Mm. Board seats are important for a couple of reasons. One, it teaches you governance. Governance is a very important thing, um, and how to do that well for any company period. And I certainly have seen companies and, and in nonprofits that governance function being not well understood and done very poorly. I've had the benefit of being on the care.org board for a couple of years now. Um, and what I've learned, I'm head of now the talent committee, uh, it's incredible how much it influences how I think about my company and leading and developing people as well as strategy, et cetera. Um, the second reason to be on boards is, you know, to borrow something from Hamilton, it's, it's, it's the room where it happens, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. It's the room where it happens. Um, you are literally making decisions about the CEO. That's your responsibility, which means you have to, one has to step up their level of, well, what does make a good CEO? What does make good results? What are our expectations? And the third is you're around other people who have done it before. You're with either great technologists, great leaders, multiple-time entrepreneurs, great civic leaders. 
looking at what do they pay attention to and what do they not pay attention to? What are the things that they are focused on strategically while letting the operations and the decisions remain in the executive team with the CEO and the CFO or the uh, COO? That's been incredible. And then finally, it's another place where the networks happen. So you show some acumen about a particular subject or decision, or you put some work in, you get noticed by those leaders, those entrepreneurs, those investors. And potentially that's your next relationship that creates a funding opportunity or business opportunity or partnership opportunity. And having more people of color in the room making those kinds of decisions is critically important for our society, frankly, to have companies act in an ethical, anti-racist way. And you know what? I am so glad that you brought up being on a board because I've been seeing a lot of people talk about it. And I myself have been thinking, how can I get on a board? So for my listeners who are interested, what advice or steps do you have for them so they can start in this process? Yeah. So I think I think the first thing is saying it out loud, saying it out loud to yourself, uh, saying it out loud to others on whatever media and so forth there are. Getting that idea out in the common parlance is really important. The second is there are resources and there are can't name them off the top of my head, but there are organizations that will either train you to be a board member and as a result, then kind of put your name out there, float your name out there through their networks, similar to like a headhunter. There are headhunters for boards. So identifying those headhunters and say, hey, what does it take to be on a board? What kinds of board can I be on? Third, if you have investors or you know investors, whether it's uh, VCs or private equity or public markets, Ask, how do you search for people on your board? I've had that conversation and they're like, oh, wow, I had never thought of that. So, and then finally, and these aren't necessarily in the order, it's getting, it's it's educating oneself on what does it take to be a board member. Uh, It isn't a ceremonial position. There's a lot of work that gets done and there's a lot of responsibility. In some cases, fiduciary responsibility. That's important. So it might be to start out with being on a uh, small company board, a nonprofit board, a civic board, just to have that experience. Because I do know that some orgs will say previous board experience required. Get that board experience, even as an advisor in an advisory board, that counts. And that's important uh, perspective to get. So Everett, let's just say I come to you and I say, you know what, I want to be on your board. What do I need to do? How would you reply to me? So the first question I'd ask is, have you been on a board before? Um, and what I'm testing for is, do you have experience that says, I understand what governance is, I understand the difference between, I've had the experience of having to evaluate the leadership team, et cetera, et cetera, right? The second question I'd ask is, have you been in a position where you have led a team, a company of some size? And some size doesn't have to be like 150 people or whatever. What I'm testing for is, have you had the experience of having that level of responsibility? Have you had to fire people and hire people? Have you had to make strategic decisions with a lot of impact? Um, All those qualities are important to making a good board member because you're you're dealing with people's careers and lives and money. And experience doing that actually makes a difference. So let's say there's those two things are yes. Then I'd say, well, what do you want to accomplish? What are your personal goals? Are you looking to apply your expertise? What expertise would that be? Say, is is there a fit with what the company might need? And then last, I would see what your timing is. Board members, you, you get board members on in certain cycles. And sometimes you don't have any bandwidth for it. Oh, I forgot one other thing. There are some boards which are fundraising boards and there's other boards that are operating boards. So understanding the difference between those two becomes real. Being asked on the board often to put the work into expanding the pool of funds, whether it's investor funds or if it's a nonprofit, raising money, um, you have to be willing or have demonstrated knowledge about how to do that. If it's an operating board, then it's do you have experience in a particular Thing that's going to help this company. It could be technological, it could be leadership, it could be a variety of things. 
those specifics actually are really meaningful so that you have a good experience and so the company gets the benefit of your of your genius. That's that's off the top of my head, that's the things I would be looking for and the questions I'd be asking. This is gonna help a lot of people. I appreciate your honest answer with that. And I have a few more questions before we end our conversation today. So you're a tech entrepreneur. You have also had other businesses that we won't be able to get into today. But I want to know from your experience as being a leader, and especially from the entrepreneurial side, what lessons have you learned from starting your business and also scaling the business? Ooh, I could be an episode in and of itself. <laughs> what have I learned? Um, I have learned that setting your purpose and values early is one of the most important things that one can do. doesn't mean they have to be static, but well thought out, concrete, and demonstrable sets a tone for the organization and makes it explicit. And it's paid off enormously. For example, putting our values out there or in, you know, for people who want to come work with the company, it repels as many as it attracts. And that's good for everybody. If someone comes and really wants to work for trust, but there's some clash with their values and our values, it's better that they don't even start with the interview process. On the other hand, if someone jives with those values, they're going to be real excited and they're going to make our interview process, onboarding and inclusion process much easier for everybody. So that's important. Second, I'd say, is something I've been thinking about for a while, and I'm kind of summarizing it into a framework, actually. I'm working on this uh, as we speak. I call it Move to the Edge, Declare It Center. And what it means is moving to the edge of one's own knowledge and experience base, not taking the given assumptions about the way the world works, and instead charting your own path and starting to question those assumptions. Why should a Black non-technical CEO be a CEO of a technical company? How does that work? <laughs> right? That's an right. assumption that but what I've seen is the particular value that I add adds to the technical capabilities of the company. In particular, I tend to sort of seek connections between opportunities and things that other people may not. It comes from being on the edge. I question a lot of assumptions. Oh, and then you build operations around that, like we started the interview with. Once you do these experiments, whether it's a technical experiment or whether it's how do you find diverse people, once you find a signal, and build it into operations. That's declaring its center. It's saying, we now know we want to center our organization on this attribute or this product model or this development model or this diversity goal. And we are going to center our operations around it and make sure that it becomes part of what we do every day. It's an example of the diversity thing I was saying earlier. If it's a side project, and not at the center of the organization, it will fail. So Move to as Declared Center is sort of a framework for really dealing with complex problems. And that's one of the things I've learned is if you have a set of complex problems that aren't linear, aren't as known, and potentially have big impact, this framework helps, is a mental model that helps people, that help me think about it differently. But it takes a certain amount of humility and a lot of curiosity. Um, I, I certainly have the opportunity to be humble every day because <laughs> um, I think particularly as a CEO, what people don't tell you is I encounter something I've never done before almost every day, often multiple times a day. Interesting. I don't think I've ever heard a CEO say that. Well, they probably don't say it in public, but um, uh, I'll, I'll give you a quick example. The number of CEOs when the pandemic hit, and when the George Floyd murder happened, we're stuck. I know I'm supposed to say something. I know it's important. I know my people are struggling or hurting, but I'm really afraid of making the wrong, saying the wrong thing. I've never seen this problem before. And wait a minute, there's two of them coming at the same time. How do I do this? We haven't seen it before. And that's just the latest of examples. For me, like, I was just dealing with compensation committee stuff, and we have a model for compensation uh, raises. I'm like, wait a minute, what is does does this framework have an unintended impact? I don't know. That's you know, it's it's we haven't done it before. Other people have, but it doesn't mean that I have, and so I have to figure out where where to find the information. 
it's like what makes a good engineer the ability to Google stuff, right? So, <laughs> um, how can you? How can you? There, I would love if there was a leadership library, a frame, leadership framework that we could just find on Google and just pour it in, you know. But it doesn't work that way. You have to. At least my experience is that uh, it's important to know when when you don't know something and seek it out, either from other founders, other CEOs, outside people, or just doing a lot of introspection. And that's awesome advice and awesome scenarios to be able to connect with my listeners. And I have a final question for you. For anyone Mm -hmm. who's looking to get in tech, as well as tech entrepreneurs who are listening to this particular episode, what advice do you have for them? There's so many things, but uh, I think where I'd start is to, to follow something they're really curious about, they're passionate about. Um, that they have a inherent interest in. And I say passion with a little bit of hesitance because I actually think resilience is more important than passion because passion will wax and wane, but resilience is what's going to carry through lean times, lean years, etc. And it takes a lot to, to take your original idea or interest and turn it into a company that lasts. Uh, the second thing is... I highly recommend finding a co-founder if you're trying to start a company. And the reason is having two different points of view or two different backgrounds makes ideas better. It's sort of a different version of diversity that we were talking about earlier. I have a background in customer development and strategy. My co-founders were both engineers. And we've taught each other things and have made our processes better, our ideas better, and it's been critical to starting a company. Plus, having all of that responsibility on one's own uh, can be very lonely at times. And it's good to have people who um, understand what you're going through and who are in the journey with you. Uh, I could tell a lot of stories of what that's meant at Trust. Can we get one of those stories? Oh, of course. Well... We started the company in the beginning of 2012. And during that time, I got divorced. I learned how to be a single dad to a five-year-old girl. My father died. And I had my national championship ring stolen, my uh, Duke soccer ring stolen, all within the first four months of 2012. And we were starting a company. When I got the call from my sister saying, hey, you need to come home, I told my co-founders, And they said, bye, see you, take what time you need, we've got this. That meant an incredible amount to me because they knew I cared a lot about the company. But what I learned about them is they cared about me as a person, as a human. And having people have your back is incredibly important. So for people who are looking for co-founders, do you have any advice? Oh, yeah, good question. Well... I think there's probably a few different areas. One is look at your colleagues. Uh, There's a reason why many companies start with folks who had worked together previously. It's a great thing for people who are trying to get into tech and also for entrepreneurs is don't burn your bridges. (laughs) In fact, the other way around, if there are strong people you've worked with, even if you don't work with them a lot that are at your company, keep that conversation going even after you move on. There are lots of stories of people reconnecting after a couple of years, doing different things and coming and doing great companies together. So maintaining that network is real important. And mm, second place to look for co-founders, black founder, well, just black founder networks, but founder networks in general, people are always looking for different uh, skill sets and startup competitions, pitch nights, things on those lines. It gives you a sense of, like who's in the room and the conversations that happen on the side, everybody's got sort of their own idea. And you'd be surprised how often in com- in having a conversation, you recognize, wait a minute, you're thinking of the same thing I'm thinking about, or you're thinking about the same problem to solve, but from a different angle. That gets real powerful if you can come up with a, a set of people who are looking at the same problem, but from different perspectives. That, uh, in my mind means a stronger team if you can figure out if you have sort of a values match and a purpose match. Yeah, those, are, those I think are the biggest 
areas and probably the most successful that I've seen. One of the potholes here is, and I've seen this several times, founders will get together because they have a great idea, they go pitch a company, they get some funding, et cetera, and then it blows up because the founders hadn't realized that they're after two different things. One might be trying to blitz scale and go as fast as possible and so quickly. The other might be trying to build a sustainable company. Some people might care about building a diverse team right away. Some may not uh, value that. If those conversations don't happen early, then it gets real messy real quick. It's sort of like you have to ask the uncomfortable question of your co-founder and of yourself, frankly, before continuing on. And, and a lot of people rush into that and regret it later. So really, you're making it sound like it's almost like being in a relationship, right? You have to ask the questions early on and make sure you're on the same page before you can move forward mm-hmm. and proceed with a relationship or in the case of a business, I guess it's almost like marrying into the business, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we, <laughs> My co-founders and I have, have been together for since 2012. So a little, uh, actually since 2011, we started in 2012. So mm-hmm. for nine years, and I'm pretty sure it's the longest we've been in any single company in our career lifetimes. Again, if, if people are trying to build real companies, those questions are serious and important. And not only not only should you ask at the beginning, you should probably have like, you know, once a year or something like that, renew those vows, if you will. <laughs> so um, to figure out how, how and if uh, people are still heading in the same direction. Yes, yes. And to piggyback off of that, you gave your advice for tech entrepreneurs, but I want to turn it more general. And what advice and tips do you have for people who want to get into tech? Yeah. So it's a great question because I think there are multiple ways and some aren't as obvious as others. Um, clearly, there are roles that are technical uh, in the you know sort of engineering or uh, and there's also uh, people get into it from a design perspective. There are also ways to go through in sort of the strategy, finance and sales route. I was a strategy and marketing person, and particularly customer development. And it turns out customer development, which sort of combines customer research and ethnography, but really trying to, the goal is to try and almost disprove your hypothesis before spending a lot of money developing a product that people don't need or solving a problem that people don't really care about. And that's really social psychology. That's really having research skills and communication skills. That's incredibly important, particularly at early startup, to be able to understand the problem you're solving and be clear before you invest really expensive resources or go raise money. That's huge. So that's something, another path that people can go through. I think the other one that people, that I think is starting to have a resurgence, and there's a friend of mine named Rahim Bazal, who has a company that is looking particularly at sales as an entry point in the tech. And his, his hypothesis is, and they've actually done pretty well at this, that in the early stages of tech, say the 70s and 80s, a lot of people, particularly those who were people of color, got into tech through the sales route. And if you're good at being able to sell tech or tech products, if you're good at sales, you can find a place. <laughs> you can find a, a, a lot of people become really interested if you can sell some stuff. And that then gets person more and more into meeting with and understanding the problems that actually need to be solved and the motivations of the people who need them solved. Somebody has a handle on that. That is a very, very powerful skill and one that can travel widely and turn into something that winds up being uh, a really wonderful tech career. Yeah. So by the way, a shout out to Rahim. It's SV Academy is the name of the, the name of the company. So Everett, we've had a great conversation. We've talked about your role in tech, your journey in the tech industry, diversity, of course, and tech entrepreneurship. Are there any final words that you would like to give my listeners today? <laughs> uh sure. Um well first of all thanks for making the time for me. I really I've enjoyed this this conversation. 
I think primarily we're out here. There are so many interesting, smart, creative, well-balanced Black entrepreneurs, Black tech people. And the networks and, and, and giving each other visibility is so important. And I'll tell you a quick story. My mother was, and father both, were born in Pittsburgh, raised in Homewood, both completed high school, and that was it. My dad went to the Navy, went to an aircraft carrier, ran the electronic shop. And after he came out in 1962, he was one of the few people that knew how to do electronics on aircraft carriers. And so IBM snapped him up for when they're expanding their kind of technology jobs. My mother started to work there as a secretary, as they called them those days. She got pregnant with me and they asked her to leave because at the time, IBM couldn't do pregnant women, which is, is appalling. But there it is. She left the workforce for a bunch of years, came back in 1973, and noticed that, huh, IBM is not just selling to universities and to the military, they're selling to big corporations. Wait a minute, there's something to this software thing, this technology thing. So she decided she wanted to be a programmer. Again, high school education, not a genius in math or anything. And she basically studied and studied and studied, was not able to take the first test because she wasn't able to study enough because she's taking care of three kids. But her boss made space for her to take the test a second time. And she wound up passing. And she had a 25-year career as a programmer from the end of mainframes all the way through to the beginning of the PC. So she was doing stuff in assembler language that would make people's heads spin at this point. And I share that story because I didn't know all those details when I was growing up. She was just working at IBM. I knew she was a programmer, but I didn't know that she was a pioneer. She was easily one of the first black female programmers at IBM, which means she was probably one of the first black female programmers, period, outside of uh, NASA and, and hidden figures. Yeah. So there's a legacy of a lot of folks who were there early. We're creating a new legacy. And so trying to lift each other up and, and support each other and give each other help uh, critique when necessary because we're all trying to get better is uh, is real important. So I would I would leave listeners with that to just keep going. There's a lot of us out here cheering for you. Thanks for listening to Black Tech Unplugged. I'm Dina McKay, and you can find the podcast on all social media sites under Black Tech Unplugged. And if you haven't already, please go subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this episode. If you have a few extra minutes, make sure to leave a five star review too. It would help me out a lot and help other people find the podcast. Until next time.